Did you ever have one of those weeks when you felt like you didn't do anything right? Well, I just uh, had one of those weeks. Uh, I have a bank of strawberries behind my house that uh, have to be watered periodically, and the watering of those plants is pretty crucial. And um, I left the hose running the other night, forgot about it, and uh, not only watered the uh, the strawberry plants, I watered our basement. It ran down through the window well down into the basement, flooded Brian's room. He woke up in the middle of the night, and there was a cascade of muddy water coming down through the window right into his room, you know, ruined his rug. Just It was a mess. And we spent a very unhappy day uh, trying to mop up and clean that mess up. And that afternoon, Carolyn said, you know, uh, I'm sure that helps you to be a little more patient with Brian's mistakes, because a few weeks before he had taken the side of Carolyn's car out from the garage door. So uh, I said, uh, yeah, it, it really does. And I said, however, <laughs> if he took the other side of the car out, uh, I might not be so forgiving. So uh, the next day, I left the same hose in the same spot and flooded the basement again. Would you believe it? And uh, I learned from that the significance of the uh, cities of refuge in the Old Testament. There's a, pl- there's a place to run when you make mistakes. That has nothing to do with what I'm going to talk about this morning. That was just true confessions. Turn to uh, chapter 16 of Matthew. And we'll continue our studies in the gospel. Matthew 16. We'll begin with verse 21. You'll recall from last week that uh, the Lord now is entering into another stage of ministry where he is primarily focusing his energies on the apostles. He sees that the cross is imminent. And he wants to prepare this group of men for the church planting role that lies ahead for them. And so he takes them out of Israel, out of the mainstream, and they go up into the northern part of Syria, up on the sides of Mount Hermon, to a wooded, lush, green area there on the side of that uh, 9,000-foot mountain. And they spend a period of time uh, receiving instruction from the Lord. And it was there, as Steve pointed out, that Peter made his great confession. Jesus asked the key question, Who do men say that I am? And the disciples said, Well, they say that you're Elijah, or one of the prophets. That is, you're one in a line of of great and significant men. And then Peter asked, or the Lord asked directly to them, Who do you say that I am? Who do you think I am? And Peter's answer came back, You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Peter had it straight. He understood that the Lord Jesus was indeed the promised one of Israel. He was the Messiah and the Son of God. And uh, the Lord's response is, Good for you, Peter. Blessed are you, Peter, because uh, you received that, that truth through revelation. That didn't come through observation of my ministry or study of Scripture. That sort of truth doesn't come through direct observation or through reason. It only comes through revelation. And so now we have the beginnings of the unique ministry that the apostles had. They, like the prophets of old, received direct revelation from God. And so the Lord continues, You are Peter, a rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
As a young man growing up, that expression, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, always puzzled me because I had a picture in my mind of the church assaulting the gates of hell. And I couldn't for the life of me uh, determine why anyone would want to get into hell. It didn't seem to make a lot of sense. But that, of course, is not what the Lord is talking about. There are two possible interpretations of that phrase. It could be that Jesus is referring to the gates here as the seat of government, because in the ancient world, the city gates were like our city hall. That's where the elders of the city, the leaders of the city gathered, and that's where they transacted business. That's where the schemes and plans were made uh, for protection of the city and for invasion of other, of other lands. So it could be that the Lord is saying that the highest schemes and strategies of hell Satan's most devilish ideas and strategies will not overthrow my church. That's one possibility. However, for myself, I think the Lord had something else in mind. And this ties in with this turning point in the Lord's ministry. When the Lord says, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against the church, he uses a term here, that he normally does not use for hell. It is the word Hades, as the New American Standard correctly translates. Hades was not the place, it wasn't Satan's realm so much as it was the realm of the dead. It corresponds to the Old Testament Sheol, or the place where the dead reside. And I believe what Jesus is doing here is thinking ahead to his death. He will die. He will enter the realm of the dead. He will enter Sheol, and the gates of Hades will close upon him, but they will not prevail over him. He would break out and manifest himself as the Son of God. Death would not conquer him, nor would it conquer his church. He would be the first in a long line of people who would conquer death through his death and resurrection. Now, a a bit later, Peter gets this straight. I think uh, in his sermon on Pentecost, that's what he has in mind when he says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourself know, this man delivered up by the predeterminate plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. See, the gates of Hades could not contain him. For David says of him, I was always beholding the Lord in my presence, for he is at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will abide in hope, because thou wilt not abandon my soul to Hades. Same idea. Nor allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life, resurrection. Thou will make known, thou will make me full of gladness with thy presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried in his tomb is with us to this day. And In other words, David could not be referring to himself because he's still dead. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon the throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah 
that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. Now, that's what I believe the Lord has in mind when he says the gates of Hades will not prevail. He would conquer death. Now, this introduces him to a theme that he will catch up in the uh, concluding verses of chapter 16 and continue to amplify throughout the rest of the book of, of Matthew. He's going to go to Jerusalem, and he's going to die, but he'll be raised again. Now, let's begin reading with verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Now, the Lord had referred obliquely to his, his death and his resurrection earlier when he talks about the sign of Jonah as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So he had made a veiled reference to the resurrection. But here he begins to speak plainly. And he tells the disciples that he must, he's obligated to go to Jerusalem. And there the scribes and the elders and the Pharisees, the three components of the Sanhedrin, the official leaders of Jerusalem, will put him to death. But he'll be raised on the third day. And Peter took him aside. The word actually means take him to himself. I think Peter flung his arm around the Lord in a protective sort of way and tried to deter him from this suicidal course. He tried to shake some sense into him. Because Peter could not see his Lord going this way. It didn't seem right. The Messiah was not to be the victim of men's evil, he was the, to be the victor. They couldn't victimize him. They couldn't take his life from him. And so he wanted to protect the Lord, perhaps from his own discouragement. He thought the Lord was giving in to the, the plots and the schemes against us. He was just giving up. And so Peter wants to encourage him. So he throws his arm around him. And he began to rebuke him. The word means to scold. He took him on. And he says, God forbid, Lord, literally mercy to you. May God be merciful to you. Snap out of it. This shall never by any means happen to you. Peter uses what we would call bad uh, grammar. He uses a double negative. We don't never say don't never, but that's what Peter says here. It's his way of emphatically negating the idea. Lord, no, under no circumstances, whatever. Will this sort of thing ever happen to you? You can't go this way. And I suppose there was in Peter an element of self-interest as well, because he had aligned himself with the Lord and with his cause. And he was concerned about his own future, his own destiny. But certainly he was for the Lord as well. Lord, not you. You can't go this way. There's got to be another way. But the Lord turned, twisted out of his grasp, and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan! You're a stumbling block to me, for you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. What a rebuke, like a slap in the face. And I think the Lord was angry. I think his eyes flashed and his tone showed his anger. These words would be totally inappropriate if not said out of anger. 
And he's speaking directly to Peter. Some would say, no, no, he's talking to Satan. But the words that follow would, would be inappropriate if you were talking to Satan. Certainly Satan does not have any interest in God's things. This was, was addressed directly to Peter, and he called him Satan, and he was angry. The term that the Lord uses here for Satan is the word that's used all the way through the Old Testament. It's uh, both the Greek term and our English term is, is simply a transliteration of the Hebrew word Satan, which means to bear a grudge, to cherish animosity, to hate someone. And it's a very apt title for Satan, who hates humanity, who's the inveterate foe of man. Jesus described him as a as a liar and a murderer. He wants nothing more than to blight and ruin and destroy human life. It's what he wants out of life. And what uh, the Lord saw was that Peter had aligned himself with Satan's uh, philosophy. He had become for this time an opponent of the Lord because the Lord had to go to Jerusalem. He was obligated to go to Jerusalem. And Peter had taken his stand against the Lord and against God's plan for his life and thus had become the enemy of God. Because you see, all the way through the Lord's life, he was tempted by Satan to take the easy route. It began in the wilderness when Satan tempted the Lord to short-circuit the process and bypass the cross and receive the glory and the crown without the suffering. That was always Satan's approach to the Lord. Do it the easy way. Don't suffer. Don't hurt. Don't struggle. Just bow down to me and I'll give you everything you've ever wanted. Just turn these stones into bread. Don't go hungry. Meet your own needs. Serve yourself. Live for yourself. And that's Satan's philosophy. That's humanism. Make yourself the center of everything. And the Lord repudiated that approach to life. He knew that was wrong. He knew that would destroy his life and the life of everyone else who followed in his, in his course. And so he, he identifies the voice of Satan in Peter's words. And he says to Peter, Satan, get behind me because you're preoccupied with your own interests and not God's interests. And then we read in verse 24 that Jesus said to his disciples, the then grows out of Peter's statements, because of Peter's statement that the Lord begins to instruct his disciples because he has, he has to correct in their thinking what Peter has said. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And that, I believe, is the central concept of the New Testament. That's the big idea. That's it. That's the quintessence of Christian life. That's the center of it all, this principle. If any man will come after me, Jesus says, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what's involved in being a follower of Jesus Christ. Now we need to understand what Jesus is saying about these uh, in this principle because uh, it's largely misunderstood. It does involve a death. Jesus 
talks about his own death. He's going this way, and those who follow him must go that way as well. And it's described as a death on a cross. And anyone listening to Jesus' words would know precisely what he was talking about. There was no confusion in their mind when Jesus said, you must take up your cross. The cross in the ancient world was an instrument of capital punishment. The counterpart today would be a gallows or a gas chamber or an electric chair. And if I said to you, take up your gas chamber and follow me, you would know exactly what I was talking about. It's the place of death. That's what a cross was for. Now, we use it for other purposes today. We wear it around our neck and we put it up on our walls and it represents something or other to us. But in those days, it represented only one thing, a cruel, harsh death. And when Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, they envisioned in their minds someone placing a cross on their shoulder and dragging it out of town to die on it. Because that's what a cross was for. So it symbolizes a death, a cruel, hard death. You hear people often say um, about uh, themselves, well, I just have my cross to bear. And uh, usually they're thinking about some long-standing illness or some physical disability or a bossy mother-in-law or a dingling wife or something. And that's their cross to bear. But that's not at all what Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about some trial or some tragedy that you and I have to experience. He's talking about a death that has to take place. Secondly, Jesus says it involves denying self. If you come after me, he says, you have to deny self. It's a very strong word. It means to denounce. The same word that's used of Peter when he denied the Lord and the little maid twitted him and said, aren't you one of those with him? Oh, never, no way. Never saw him. Never knew him. He denied the Lord. Same term. It means to repudiate, to renounce, to denounce self. Now, he does not say deny yourself things. That's not the point. Again, some people uh, feel that, that this, this command uh, necessitates denying yourself certain things that you enjoy, like a second dessert, or you give up something for Lent. You don't uh, hunt aardvarks during Lent or whatever. And you just set aside certain normal passions and desires that you have to please God. But that again, that's not at all what the Lord is talking about. He's referring to denying self, putting away our self-centeredness, our tendency to live for ourselves, to center everything around ourselves, to live for our own pleasure, to indulge ourselves. It's that sort of thing that Jesus is referring to. So it's more than merely an act. For the Lord, it was an historic act. He went to the cross and he died. He gave up his life. But it involves more than an act. It's an attitude of life, which the Lord had through his entire life. Jesus said, I did not come to be ministered to or to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. From the beginning of his incarnation, he poured himself out to people. He lived for others. He served. He didn't live for himself. That was the 
The uh, uh, great characteristic of his life in ministry, the cross, was simply the culmination of all of that. That's Paul's argument in Philippians 2, if you'd like to look at that passage. In verse 3, Paul says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. That is an empty, uh, uh, empty assessment of yourself out of pride. But with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Instead of centering everything around oneself, we need to be thinking in terms of the needs of others. See? Some of you perhaps walked in here lonely and wishing that somebody would speak to you thinking that if I just had a friend, then I'd be satisfied, but we never are. Instead of thinking in terms of someone showing friendship to us, we need to think in terms of others. Where's someone I can show friendship to? It's just that sort of thing, that sort of radical change and orientation in life that the Lord is talking about here. And then to illustrate in verse 5, he says, Have this attitude, this mind, this way of thinking, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, what Paul means here is that he was God. He was deity. Though he existed as God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be forcibly retained. He didn't hang on to it. But he emptied himself. But as he gave up the use of his deity, didn't cease to be God. How can you cease to be God once you're God? But he gave up his use of his deity. Taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Yeah, that was the pattern of the Lord's life from the very beginning. He was a servant. He was a bondservant. He came to serve, not to be served. And the cross simply illustrates the attitude that pervaded everything he did. He gave it all up. He gave up his rights as God. And then he didn't stalk around earth saying, look what I gave up. He just served. Never thought in terms of, of his own needs and interests and, and that sort of thing. He didn't center life upon himself. He centered it on others. And Paul says that's the attitude that that pervaded Jesus' thinking, and that ought to be our thinking as well. That's what he means when he says, if you want to come after me, if you want to be my follower, we need to set aside our self-interest, deny self, take up our cross, that's the place of death, put death to self, and follow me. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what ought to characterize Christians. Not that we go to meetings all the time or um, that we have a certain ritual that we perform, but that we love and we give and we serve people. That ought to be the, the hallmark. That's what ought to set us apart from the rest of the world, you see. That's the mark. And the Lord says that's radically different from the world's approach to things. He said to Peter, Peter, you're thinking in terms of man's interests instead of God's. All of secular society tells you to assert yourself. 
If you don't have things your way, you'll never be happy. If you don't get this particular trinket or toy or bauble or whatever it is, something that you spray on or roll on or ride in or or something, you know, then you won't you won't be happy. You won't be satisfied. You won't be fulfilled. Got to have it your way. You got to be number one, numero uno. Think for yourself. Look out for yourself. Protect yourself. Hoard your resources. And the Lord says, no, just give yourself away. Forget yourself. Now, what we have to realize is that that that's only possible because the Lord himself did it first. It's the cross, his cross, that makes all of that possible. Paul makes that very clear in Romans 6. He says there that uh, we not he not only died for us in the sense that our our guilt is taken away by his sacrifice, but we died with Christ. Something mysterious happened to us. Our the inner man was actually changed. When we come to Christ, something happens. It's as though we ourselves were nailed on that cross with the Lord Jesus and we died with him. Paul puts it that way, and we've been raised with him. So now we have the power to choose to serve others. We can't otherwise. The Lord here is not merely talking about martyrdom, just giving up your life in that sense. He's talking about reckoning yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, as Paul puts it, and alive unto righteousness. Just considering it a fact, if you've come to the Lord Jesus and made him Lord, then yourself has been put to death. You have the power now to act out of that new life. Now, as always, there's a reason for things. The Lord doesn't say we need to serve others simply because he wants life to be hard for us. The reason the Lord tells us anything is because that's the way life is. He wants to spare us from so much hurt and pain and from the deadness and meaninglessness and the sense of uselessness of a life lived on the wrong principles. And so he tells us the truth so we can save our lives. That's what's so fascinating to me about Scripture. It's not uh, an assortment of of rules and regulations which, uh, if you keep, make you a Christian. It's an, it's the Lord's view of reality. He tells us what's real, what, what works and what doesn't work, what makes us happy and what doesn't make us happy, what to avoid in order to keep from destroying ourselves. The Lord's point here is that life lived on this basis is the only life worth living. Because life lived on any other basis always ends in deadness, meaninglessness, restlessness, boredom. Now look, verses 25 through 27. These are the reasons, and you'll notice that each of these verses is introduced by the little conjunction for. He's giving reasons. Four, this is why we need to deny self, take up the cross. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses, and here he actually says kills, puts to death, his life for my sake shall find it. You want to find your life? Then lose it for Christ's sake. That's the key. Not enough just to 
give your life. Many of you know of Albert Schweitzer, who gave his life, but not for the Lord's sake. If you've read any of Albert Schweitzer's writings, you know that, that the Lord was not Lord to him at all. No one knows what his motivation was in going. It's very unclear. Went to Africa, gave up a promising music career, a brilliant medical career, went to Africa to serve. And he's held up as a paragon of service and self-sacrifice. But if you know anything about his latter years, he became a uh, just an irascible old man that no one could get along with. Even his patients couldn't stand him. And uh, just died a lonely old man out in Africa because he didn't do it for Jesus' sake. That's the key. We have to reckon ourselves indeed to be dead unto sin and alive unto God because of what he's done and for his sake. And Jesus says, if you do that, you'll find your life. You'll find what you're looking for. You know, the world is full of people who are trying to find themselves by buying the latest fashions and a certain type of vehicle and a particular plot of ground. And we think if we you know we just had a little better house, then we'd be satisfied. Or if we just had nicer clothes or a better car or another vehicle of some kind or a backcountry ranch or something, then we'd find ourselves. But that's a bottomless pit. The more you want, the more you get, the more you want. That's just the way we are. The Lord says you want to find yourself, then give yourself away. Some of you feel you're in a situation where you're not loved, and you think, oh, if my husband just loved me, then I'd be satisfied. But you know, you really wouldn't. The more love we get, the more we we want. Our needs are inexhaustible. The way we're satisfied is in loving, in giving, in pouring our life out for others. Now, this is not just good advice. This is a truism. It's a principle that's true in all of life. If you want to find yourself, give yourself. That's true not only of us as individuals, but also as, as a corporate body. I've thought of that so often in terms of our life as a church. If we want to be healthy and whole, sound as a church, we need to be willing to give ourselves away, give our people away. We shouldn't care where our people go. If there are churches in other parts of the of the city that, that need teachers, we ought to be willing to send them. We shouldn't care what ministries are involved in outside the church. If we try to hoard our resources and keep all of our people here, we're going to lose out. But if we give ourselves away, then we'll be healthy, we'll be whole, we'll be satisfied, we'll be fulfilled as a, as a body of people. Just as you and I as individuals... If we give, we're satisfied. If we try to gain and get, we're always unhappy. Then I think the next reason is really an elaboration of the first, for what will a man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Really what we want is, is happiness. The word soul is simply a, an idiom for life. You spend your whole life amassing a, a fortune and gaining a great deal of power and doing things that you want to do and and you end up losing your soul. Your, your life doesn't mean anything. You're, you're, you have what Thoreau called destination sickness. You've arrived and there's no place else to go and you're just unhappy. And the Lord's point is, what can you give in order to, to buy your soul, redeem your soul? What do you have to have in order to make your soul happy? If you, you have the whole world, 
If you possessed everything in the world, he says, your soul would still be empty and unfulfilled. I was talking to a man the other day who told me that all through his life he lived for one goal. He wanted a backcountry ranch. And finally he got it. And it's a dandy. And he said, I remember flying in there the first day and looking at it, and it all turned into ashes. I didn't want any of it. It didn't mean a thing to me. But he said, then I decided that this ranch belongs to God. I'm going to put it to its intended purpose. Whatever the Lord wants, he can do it with it. If he wants to take it away, fine. If he wants to use it some other way, fine. Then he said, I enjoyed that ranch. Because it wasn't mine any longer. I gave it up. And that's what we have to learn about all of life. No amount of things will ever purchase happiness for us. It'll never fulfill us. Some of us have been there. We've had things. They don't fulfill. And that's what the Lord is trying to spare us from. A lifetime of, of futility trying to amass things that don't, don't satisfy us. And then finally, verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come, well, excuse me, verse 26, for what will a man be, all right, in the first place, verse 27, my arms are getting too short these days, I've been holding off wearing reading glasses up here because I look like Benjamin Franklin, <laughs> probably show up next week. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then recompense every man according to his deeds. Not only will is there a, an accounting in this life in terms of satisfaction or non-satisfaction in this life, but all of us look forward to the prospect of standing before the Lord. And for some that will be a, a, a fearsome thing to stand before him and to know that we have missed out. We've spent our whole lives living for ourselves, gathering things for ourselves, thinking in terms of our needs and our interests. And the Lord will probably say to us, that was a magnificent performance. My, my. You went to the top of your company. You made all that money. You acquired all those possessions, and you missed the whole point of life. And this is a very sobering thing. There will be an accounting. For those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, that accounting is not a condemnation, simply a reckoning with, with the Father. We have to stand before the Father and give an answer for what we've done with our bodies, in our bodies. For others, it will be to stand before the judge of all the earth and give an accounting because we have squandered the resources that God has given. We've taken our lives, used our bodies and our minds, prostituted our, our gifts, the things that God has given on ourselves, misused them, and we'll have to answer. And that's something we can't get away from, even if there's no reckoning in this life. We'll all stand before God someday to give an accounting for what we've done with what God has given to us. Now, there is an interesting footnote to this um, teaching. It's the Father's own footnote. 
The Lord teaches, and then the Father responds, and in one sense endorses what the Son has said. Look at verse 28. Truly, truly, I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now that sounds uh, strange. 1,900 years have gone by. The Lord has not come back yet. All the apostles are dead. The Lord must have made a mistake. He, like everyone else around him, was uh, fallible. And he simply missed it. He thought he would come back while the apostles were still alive. But he didn't. He was wrong. But he wasn't. He was right. Verse 17 describes for us what the Lord was talking about. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves. Apparently, uh, Mount Hermon, they went up on the slopes of Mount Hermon, and there, Luke tells us, they prayed. Perhaps prayed about the Lord's uh, course, his travel to Jerusalem and the death that he would die there. And perhaps the Lord even asked, as he did at Gethsemane, if possible, let this cup pass from me. And the Lord told him again, no, no, there's only one way to receive the glory, and that's through the cross. There's no crown without a cross. Can't have the reward without the death. And then in verse 2 we read, he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. What the Lord did was uh, just uh, sort of speed things up and crank the tape forward to another time in history and show these three disciples, the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, what the second coming would be like and what the Lord would look like when he came back in his glory. He was transfigured before them. Light blazed out from his person, and they saw him as they would see him when he came in his glory. This was a sort of sneak preview, a preview of coming attractions. This is the way it will be, the Father said, when the Son comes. This is the glory that he'll receive. Hebrews says, For the glory that was set before him, he endured the cross. See, the Lord himself saw what was coming, and the disciples saw what was coming, and this is what sustained them through this time. The disciples knew exactly what they were saying. John says in his uh, gospel, we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. And Peter, in his second epistle, describes the same event. We heard the voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We saw the glory, the second coming of Christ. They were moved forward in time. And they saw the Lord coming in glory. And they realized that it was all worth it. As Peter puts it, For I reckon that the sufferings of this world are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. It's worth it giving up our rights. It's worth it to serve others. It's worth it to go through life unloved and unappreciated and uncared for. And to spend your life as a bondservant for others. It's worth it because of the glory that's coming. And we're told that Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. And again, Luke tells us that they chatted about his departure. They talked about his death. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. 
If, if you wish, I will make three ta- tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. There are some people who have to say something, and there are some who have something to say. I think Peter was the former here. He just had to say something and blurted this thing out and missed the whole point because the Father himself interrupts him right in the middle of this pronouncement. Lord, uh, we need to do something special for you three men. We'll build three little booths here in memory of, of you three very important men. And voice comes from heaven, interrupts him right in the middle of his statement. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. You see? The Father is saying, What the Son is telling you about life is right. That's the only way to go. Listen to him. There are a lot of voices uh, coming at us from secular society saying, assert yourself. Live for yourself. You deserve it. You need a rest. And the Lord says, just give yourself away. I'll take care of you. Don't protect yourself. When you need a rest, I'll give you a rest. When you need love, I'll provide love for you. When you need security, I'll give you that. In the meantime, just forget yourself and just start serving people around you. If you want friends, be friendly. That's always the way to approach that problem. Proverbs says, if a man wants to have friends, he must show himself friendly. Friendly, A friend is not someone who ministers to your needs, it's someone to whom you minister. So if you're here and you feel lonely and you don't have a friend in the room, my goodness, look, you've got 300. Start reaching out to someone in need. If you live in a home where your children don't appreciate you and your husband or wife don't love you and your needs are not being met, don't worry about that. God will take care of you. Start loving them. Start reaching out to them. Ministering to your children, to your husband, to your wife. And that's how we find ourselves. Jesus put it another way. He said, unless... A grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies. It abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. You want to be fruitful? You want to be satisfied? You want to make your way through life fulfilled, joyful? Then fall into the ground and die. And God will give you back your life in full measure. You'll have the satisfaction that you're looking for. Let's pray. Father, so unorthodox is this idea, we would never know it apart from Revelation. It runs so much against our grain, conflicts with everything we're taught from cradle to grave. And yet we know it's true because it comes from the one who is truth itself, who lived it out and taught it and is trustworthy. Teach us to believe it, Father, and to live on that basis, counting upon you for your strength to make it make it happen. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.